I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles, if you would, uh, to the last chapter of the book of Revelation. If you have not been with us for the past few weeks, you might wonder why we're looking at the book of Revelation when we have our attention focused on the Christmas story. Well, I could have easily set aside this last section of Revelation until after the holidays, but then again, what do we celebrate at Christmas but the coming of Christ? And what do we find in Revelation 22 but the anticipation of the coming of Christ? These are not the same coming. The first coming saw Jesus in his humility. The second will see Jesus in his glory. In his first coming, he took upon himself the sin of the world. In the second coming, he will judge the sin of the world. So we see some remarkable parallels and contrasts between his first coming, his first appearing, his first epiphany, as we saw last week, his brilliant appearing, and his second appearing. And you and I, as believers in Christ, if you're, if you're a Christian this morning, we are living between these two epiphanies of Jesus Christ. And how are we supposed to live? We're to be doing what this text at the end of Revelation encourages us to do, and that is to yearn for His coming. Jumping to the very end of our text in Revelation 22, right before John pronounces the brief blessing that ends the entire book in verse 21, we have verse 20 where he says, he who testifies to these things, that is the Lord Jesus. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And John answers, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The apostle John, the author of Revelation, yearns for the Lord's coming. And that's because the Lord Jesus himself gives John the wisdom of the book of Revelation through the visions so that he and others might know the Lord and yearn for his coming also. And going up to the beginning of this text, if we go all the way to verse 6, we're of course in verses 6 through 21 this morning, it says, and the Lord, that's the Lord Jesus, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And then he promises, and behold, I am coming soon. And this is joyful news for the hurting, persecuted believers who were following Jesus at the end of the first century when Revelation is written, when there was a lot of trouble, when believers were beginning to wonder why Jesus was waiting to come back for them and why they were suffering. But not only does John the Apostle yearn for the Lord's coming, and not only does Jesus want us to yearn for His coming, but the Spirit-led church yearns for His return also. We see this in verse 17, where John writes, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. That is, the Holy Spirit and the bride, which I take to be the perfected saints of God that Revelation has been describing, that will inhabit the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ. 
That's how Revelation describes believers who have gone on to meet the Lord. The Holy Spirit and the perfected believers say, come, Lord Jesus. Well, we know, uh, we know then that there's this proper response to the Lord's revelation of his coming. We should yearn for the Lord's coming because the Holy Spirit himself yearns for his coming and those saints of God who have been made perfect yearn for his coming. And if we do not have a yearning in our hearts for the Lord to return, then we are out of step with the will of the Holy Spirit and with those who are already with the Lord. And it means that we need to grow in this area of our walk with the Lord. And that's why John continues, see verse 17 there, with this invitation. He says, and let the one who hears say, come. That's you and me this morning. We're hearing this text. We're reading it. We're hearing it proclaimed. If you've been listening to the book of Revelation, if you've been reading and hearing it proclaimed, then there ought to be a cry in your heart as well. Come, Lord Jesus. Catch away your church. Bring your judgments. Come and reign. Bring in the new earth. But do we really yearn for him to come? Does our heart cry with John, amen, (laughs) come Lord Jesus? Or is it a half-hearted cry? Because for whatever reason, perhaps for some of the reasons I offered last week, we just don't sense that yearning in our hearts for the Lord. And I'm suggesting as we look at these last verses in Revelation that we can grow in our yearning for the Lord's return when we understand and embrace several important aspects of Jesus coming. In other words, as we are confronted with the truth of the Lord's coming and as we submit to loving it like the Lord does, what are these important aspects of the Lord coming? Well, the first one you see there, we looked at last Lord's Day, the certainty of His coming, the fact that it is really going to happen. Jesus says in these last verses of Revelation, I am coming, I am coming, surely I am coming. Verse 6, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. And so important are these truths that the book of Revelation contains a warning in verses 18 and 19 that we looked at last week about what will happen to those who try to change the message either by taking something away or adding something to it. So at the end of the book of Revelation, the Lord is urging us to realize He is coming for sure. And that is a simple yet profound truth. We cannot yearn for the Lord's coming unless we really believe in the Lord's coming. So the first important aspect of his coming is the certainty of his coming. This morning, I'm going to go one step further and just one step. Next Lord's Day, I'm planning to finish the whole book of Revelation, okay? So uh, some of you don't believe me. I've had people say, you're lying. And they actually call me a liar to my face, but we will. I I have it planned out already, Lord willing. (laughs) So this is another important aspect of the the nearness of, uh, of, of the of the, of the yearning for his coming, and that is the nearness of his coming. The nearness of it teaches us to yearn for it. If the certainty of the Lord's coming encourages us to truly believe that he is going to return, then the nearness of the Lord's coming encourages us to believe that it could happen at any moment. Just like the proclamation of the Lord's coming occurs in the text, like a bell appealing 
again and again. So the timing of his coming rings out. In verse 6, the Lord sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. It's a word that means quickly or shortly. In verse 7, it says, and behold, I am coming soon. That's the same word. In verse 10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. That is the time for the fulfillment of all the things that we've been reading about in Revelation. Earlier in the chapter, uh, earlier in in, in chapter 10, you may remember uh, John heard some amazing words thundering in the sky, and he was about to write them down. Remember this back in chapter 10? He's about to write them down, and the Lord calls to him from heaven and says, seal up the words. Don't write those down. And we're always wondering, what did John hear that we would love to know? But now that John has finished recording what the Lord wants us to know, John is told, do not seal up these words. Why? Because the time of their fulfillment is near. It's close at hand. It's about to happen. And God's people need to be aware. There's, there's, it's, it's like there's this urgency. Don't seal those up. Let everybody see this right away so they can be thinking about it, so they can be getting ready. They need to be encouraged by this. In verse 12, the Lord Jesus again says, Behold, I am coming soon. And in verse 20, we read the same. Behold, I am coming soon. In fact, every time the Lord says he is coming in this passage, he uses this adverb, quickly, soon, in a short space of time. This promise to come soon also appears at the beginning of the book of Revelation. The opening words of this book, in fact, read the revelation of Jesus Christ Uh, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Does those words look very familiar when we we line them up with Revelation 22? What about these words? Uh, Revelation 1.3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and those who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And then to the faithful believers at Philadelphia, Jesus promises, I am coming soon. And that's the same that we find in chapter 22. So this is one of the major takeaways of the book of Revelation. The nearness of his coming. The Lord is promising us, his church, he will come soon. He says his coming is near. He states it emphatically at the beginning of Revelation and at the end of the Revelation, like like bookends. The beginning of the prophecy and the end of the prophecy, Jesus wants us to know he is coming soon. Now, that should naturally raise a big question in all of our minds. If Jesus said that his coming was near at the close of the first century, why hasn't he already returned? I mean, what do the words quickly and near and soon with respect to time mean? Well, the simplest answer to that question is that they mean quickly and soon and near. There's no hidden meaning in the Greek. I can promise you that. It's still a big question mark no matter what language you're reading in. But they mean soon and near and quickly in context. 
For example, in Jesus' parable in Luke, uh, Luke 14, the master of the house tells his servant to go quickly into the streets and call people to come inside for the feast. Remember this parable? And the idea is that he goes out into the streets and, and the highways and byways and compels them to come in. He uses the same verb or adverb, uh, quickly. And the idea is he goes out right away. But when Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4.19, I hope to come to you quickly, it means that he hopes that he will be able to pay them a visit within a year or two. So the amount of time that quickly can represent may vary depending on the context. Now, some of you say, yeah, but come on. It's going on 2,000 years after Christ ascended to the Father. I'd say that that strains the definition of quickly and soon quite much. But if you think that way, how long do you suppose God's people waited for Jesus to come the first time? If we go back to Genesis 3, it was four to 5,000 years before Christ came that God promised that one from Adam and Eve would rise up and crush the serpent's head. God doesn't say that this is going to happen quickly in Genesis chapter 3, but Eve must have thought this was coming right away. Because when she brought her firstborn into the world, she said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And a lot of interpreters think that she's saying, this is the one, this is the, the one that was promised. This is him. But thousands of years later, after the flood, around 2000 BC, God promised Abraham that he would rescue the world through a nation coming from him. By the time of Abraham's great-grandson, we discover that the tribe of Judah would be the one from whom a king would rise. But it is not until the Israelites are living in the promised land and David is on the throne around 1,000 BC, so 1,000 years have gone by, that we learn that the coming king would be on the throne of David. And another 250 years go by in 750 BC when Isaiah prophesied to the house of David that a virgin would conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel and that his throne names would be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And now 750 years after that, as Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God finally sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Do you think that in all that time, God's people had given up waiting, looking, hoping, praying for their deliverer? No. When we read the Christmas stories, we meet people who were filled with hope expecting a savior to come. In Luke chapter one, Mary sings, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham 2,000 years ago and to his offspring forever. Later in Luke chapter one, we hear from John the Baptist's father named Zechariah. Some of, some of you were quick to point out to me last week that I kept calling Zechariah a Limelech last week. I don't know why. I think you may have witnessed my first senior moment uh, that I've ever had. But in my defense, uh, Zechariah has a strong resemblance to a Limelech in that picture. And so I think that's why my brain started firing the other name. 
But Zechariah, to be sure, in reflecting on the news of the coming of the Messiah, says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. This wasn't a new thing. It was something they would have been waiting for for 2,000 years. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Both of these songs of thanksgiving recognize the coming of the Messiah as a fulfillment of something God had promised years before. In fact, measuring from the time of Abraham, they had been waiting longer for the first coming of Jesus. Do you realize this? Then we have been waiting for the second coming of Jesus. That put things, puts things in perspective. But there is another person in the Christmas story that I think we can learn from when it comes to waiting for the coming of the Lord, and that is Simeon. Luke one twenty five says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And I want you to consider carefully the description of Simeon here. Righteous, devout, that is God-focused, and spirit-filled. So at the least, Simeon is a man thinking godly and spiritually. And as a godly man, what is he doing? He's waiting for the consolation of Israel, which is code for the coming of the Messiah. That this, this word waiting does not mean he's simply killing time, kicking around Jerusalem, sort of waiting for him to show up thinking that the Lord might come, really embedded into the Greek word translated waiting here is the word receiving. It's the same word that Jesus' critics used when they complained about him, that he was receiving or welcoming sinners and eating with them. It doesn't just mean to wait around. It means waiting to receive or to accept or to welcome. So what Simeon is doing is better described here as a readiness to receive or to welcome. It indicates an eager expectancy. In fact, do you know where this word shows up? It shows up in the text that we opened last week as, as we began looking at Revelation 22, 6 through 21. It shows up in Titus 2, 11 through 13, where Paul says that we who are living in the days following Christ's first appearance should be waiting for that blessed hope and the glory of our, and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are to be doing this also, what Simeon is doing, waiting, but looking with expectancy. We're supposed to be doing, with respect to the Lord's second appearance, what Simeon was doing with respect to his first appearance, not just waiting, but looking. Now, what created this kind of longing in Simeon? Well, the verse continues, or the, the passage continues in verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents, that's Mary and Joseph, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Luke does not give Simeon's age here. 
But I think the fact that he says he can now die peacefully in verse 29 seems to indicate that he's probably pretty old. And perhaps at one time, he began to beg the Lord, don't let me die until I can meet the Messiah. And God granted him that request. I think his age is significant because it is a reminder to us that though a long time passes, God always keeps his promises, always. And the fact that we do not know when the coming will occur, but we know the fact that it will occur is what makes the coming quick or near. At any moment, the Lord could set into motion the last events that we read in Revelation. But that still leaves a question in our minds. Why does the Lord do it that way? Why does the Lord delay his coming? I don't know a single better passage to answer that question than 2 Peter chapter 3. And before we go to the Lord's table this morning, if I can just have you turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 for just a few moments to look at this text. Peter says that in the last days, scoffers will come and these scoffers will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of the creation. He's not coming. Nothing is different. You say he's coming. Generation comes, generation goes. He still hasn't come. Christianity is a farce. There's nothing to it. It's just something we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel a little better because we're suffering in the world. But then Peter says, basically, yeah, that's what they said before the flood came. He says, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And then Peter says, by comparison, just as the earth waited for God's judgment by water, we are waiting for God's judgment by fire. And if you've been tracking Weather Revelation, you know exactly what that refers to. The fiery judgments that have been uh, talked about, that John has seen visions about in Revelation. Peter says, by the same word, that is the same kind of promise, a promise that will not be broken. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But why does it seem like this judgment is slow in coming? Peter tells us, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. In other words, time does not mean the same thing that it means to, uh, to, to it doesn't mean the same thing to God that it means to us. The Lord is coming as quickly as he should what if he would have come, say, a few decades after John wrote Revelation? Do you know what would have happened? The gospel would not have gone around the globe. And 1,800 years of Gentiles coming to faith in Christ, including you and me, would never have happened. None of us would have even come into existence to know the Lord's love and mercy. Aren't we glad that the Lord has delayed his coming in this case 
So Peter explains, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Really what you're seeing is his patience. The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But, he says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That's the illustration. That's quickness, suddenness, when we don't expect it. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the bodies, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, like it talks about in Revelation. So, how shall we then live? Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? in lives of holiness and godliness, like Simeon, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. The word, the word waiting for that you see there is a, is a close synonym to the word that we already talked about. It means to wait with eagerness, to be ready to welcome. And the word hastening translates a word of intense emotion. It's a strong desire for something. Do you know how godly, holy, spirit-filled people are supposed to live when it comes to the subject of the Lord's return? We're not only to believe strongly that it's going to happen, but we should be eagerly anticipating it, ready to welcome the Lord's return, like we see the people doing in the Christmas story itself. Because in the last verse, verse 13 here, Peter says that it is according to the promise. And for us, Jesus has promised to come quickly and to come soon and that the promise of his coming is near. That is the foundation for our waiting, our eager expectancy for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. I couldn't put it any clearer than this. Embracing the promise of the Lord, behold, I am coming soon, is one of the ways that our longing and yearning for his coming is increased. The holiday season is upon us, and soon many of you will be traveling to be guests in someone else's home, and others of you will be welcoming family back to home for the holidays. And Personally, we're supposed to have every one of our children home on Christmas and our two new grandchildren. And we're so much looking forward to this, having all the kids, all the spouses together in one big place. But you know what it's like to wait for family to arrive that you really want to see. They're driving in and you kind of know when they're supposed to get there, but you're not really sure of the arrival time. You don't know the exact moment, but everyone is doing what? cleaning, cooking, getting the place ready, lighting candles, doing all these things, running to the store for the last, at the last minute because you forgot the last two trips that you, were, you went to the store, you forgot something, and you, you run out to get it. And as the time gets closer, this, the excitement builds and the emotion builds. And one of the kids comes from the window, hey, they're here, and everybody comes running, and then they're not there. There's nobody there. And you're like, stop it. Go to your room. You know, uh, this, is not, this is not the right time to be doing that kind of thing. I don't know where my kids would get the idea to do that, but uh, it's one of, my, one of my Christmas memories. But, uh, you know, there's this eagerness, there's this anticipation and expectancy of love and warmth and friendship 
and sharing and kindness and joy. But the truth is, when the Lord returns for us and transforms our bodies to be like his glorious body, we will know for the first time what real love is like and what real warmth and kindness and joy are like. We will know finally what it really means to feel like we are at home. So when Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon, I am coming quickly, we ought to be getting ready, cleaning up, behaving in the way that we would if we're about to welcome somebody into our home. Only he is coming to take us home. And when we begin to live in the conviction that this event could take place at any time, it is one of the ways the Lord leads us to yearn for his coming.